Welcome to Latinx Audio Litany. I'm your host, Teresa Douglas. In this week's episode, we're going to hear an excerpt from Reina Grande's latest novel, A Ballad of Love and Glory. After the reading, stick around. Reina wrote a song especially for this novel, and you'll hear that as bonus content right after the episode. Chapter 24 November 1846, San Luis Potosí. Early one morning, Jimena found herself being escorted to Santa Ana's private quarters. When she entered his chambers, he was on a large four-poster bed, reclining on fancy feather pillows trimmed with lace, a glass of brandy in his hand. When the servant pulled back the mosquito netting, she could see his face flushed and sweaty from fever, with large beads of perspiration gathered on his prominent forehead. He bit her closer, watching her approach with his dark, penetrating eyes. His lower lip protruded naturally, making him seem as if he were permanently pouting. Jimena was taken aback by how he looked without his elaborate uniforms and gold cane. He seemed more like a sickly schoolmaster than the army's general-in-chief. Forgive me for not greeting you properly, Senora Jimena, but as you can see, I am obliged to keep to my bed, very much indisposed. Thank you for agreeing to minister to my injury. Teniente Riley and General Mejia speak very highly of your skills as a healer. I'm at your service, Your Excellency, she said, almost choking on the words. She placed her supply basket on the table in the center of the room where a large porcelain bowl overflowed with pomegranates. Unwrapping her frayed rebozo from her neck and shoulders, she hung it on the back of a scarlet velvet chair. The servant coughed his disapproval, but she left it there, requesting a pot of hot water and clean bandages and towels to be brought to her. When the servant took his leave to fetch the items, she found herself alone with the general. Despite the fever and fatigue, Santa Ana's gaze remained just as intense as when he was healthy, perhaps even more so. Previously, she'd observed him from a distance and thus far had managed to stay out of his way. The manner in which he looked at her made her even more uncomfortable than she already felt in his luxurious surroundings replete with silk draperies and marble floors, alabaster candelabras and crystal lamps, paper walls and gilded mirrors. Under his piercing gaze, she felt even more self-conscious of her threadbare blouse and worn-out sandals. The faded skirt Nana Hortensia had dyed with wild indigo and goldenrod. But her apron was clean and her hair was braided neatly and fastened together with new ribbons. Those and her gold hoop earrings were the only nice things she owned and the best she could do to make herself presentable. Besides, she was here to cure this pompous caudillo, so what did it matter what she looked like? She wasn't here to please him with her looks. He was just another patient, wasn't he? No. The devil lurking behind his feverish eyes reminded her that he was no ordinary human being. She took a deep breath to steady herself and approached him. May I? She took the glass of brandy sitting on the night table and peeled away the sweat-soaked sheets to expose his left leg. The stump was red and inflamed, with pus and blood oozing from open sores. The surgeons who tended to me butchered my leg, 
It has never healed properly. Imbeciles. As she assessed the wound, Jimena noticed how clumsy the amputation had been. The surgeons hadn't left enough muscle and skin flap to pad and cover the amputated bone, leaving a few centimeters of it exposed just below the knee joint. He told her it caused him excruciating pain when he walked. The wooden leg couldn't fit properly since it rubbed against the protruding bone and the skin had been stretched so much when it was stitched at the closure that sometimes it broke open, making the stump prone to chronic infection. The infection is superficial, she said. It hasn't affected the flesh or bone. You'll soon be on your way to recovery. Nunca! Those incompetent surgeons condemned me to a life of pain. They should have left me to die instead. His lower lip stuck out farther, making him look even more like a petulant man-child. The general is fortunate to still have his life. In my time now in this army, I've seen half of the soldiers whose limbs were sawed off perish from the operation. It's an honor to die for one's country, he said, and I would gladly give my life for the motherland. If I had died for my wounds in the battle against the French, I would have had a Blime death with the sweetest taste of glory to die for Mexico, to go down in history as a martyr. She took some supplies from her basket and busied herself with preparing the herbs she needed to make a paste to treat his wound. She could hear her grandmother whispering in her ear, Yerba del Pollo to staunch the bleeding, Gobernadora to discourage infection, Calendula to soothe inflammation, Floribundia to ease the pain. As she crushed the petals and leaves in her mortar and pestle, Jimena thought about those who'd already perished in this war and how they would never be celebrated as saviors and martyrs. Most who'd given their lives for their country or who had yet to do so would be forgotten as if they never existed. And now, this foolish man was speaking of being grateful for a chance at martyrdom. Teniente Riley said that you're a widow. Your husband was killed by the rangers, was he not? She nodded. She didn't want to talk about Joaquin with this man. Esos rinches malditos, he said. Death and damnation to them. The servant returned with the supplies and set them on the table for her before leaving the room. She put malva leaves into the hot water and let them steep before washing his wound. Glancing up, she found him watching her intently. Tell me, Senora Jimena, if it isn't impertinent of me to ask, where in the Republica do you hail from? I detect a familiar accent in your voice. San Antonio de Bejar. Una bejareña, you don't say. And your family? Did they fight with me or against me during the Texan insurrection? She looked him in the eye and didn't hesitate to say, against. Then she held her breath as she waited for his reaction. His eyes the color of roasted tobacco leaves, revealed nothing. She almost wished he would throw her out of his chambers so she could get away from him. Finally, he shook his head and shrugged. It doesn't matter now, does it? It comforts me to see that you're on the right side of the war this time. She turned back to the table, her body throbbing from the stink of his words. She took her time finishing the paste mixing some of the hot water into the crushed herbs until it was the right consistency. She remembered so vividly the day Santa Ana and his troops arrived in San Antonio. Many of the townspeople had tried to flee into the country as soon as the rumors reached them that he was on his way to the town. 
Colonel William Travis and his small force barricaded themselves in the old Alamo mission, including her father, who was under the command of Captain Teguin. The wagon her father sent to take her and an Hortensia to the ranch, 15 miles from the town, was unable to get past the Mexican troops, and so they locked themselves up in their house and were forced to witness the siege. Santa Ana hung a red flag from the towers of San Fernando Church, a sign that no quarter would be given, no mercy for the rebels, and she and Ana Hortensia cried for the fate of her father and prayed for his safety. When the Alamo fell, they both rushed out to search for him among the fallen and didn't find him anywhere. They later learned that he left the Alamo one night with Seguin under orders from Travis to bring reinforcements. Santa Ana, denying the insurgents a Christian burial, incinerated their bodies in pyres. Jimena watched from the terrace of her home as the smoke rose over the buildings. The fire burned for two days and the stench of burnt flesh permeated the air, lingering permanently in the collective memory of its citizens. A few days later, a letter arrived from her father with news that he was alive and with General Houston's forces. The executions in Goliath soon followed. Almost 400 captives, Texian and Tejano alike, were marched onto a field and shot dead on the orders of the vile man before her. As Jimena observed him lying prostrate in bed, she saw not an invalid or an amputee, but the monster who had committed such atrocious acts of violence from which her homeland had never recovered. Did he have any idea how the destruction he'd wreaked in Texas had incited the Texians' fury and loathing for all Mexicans? She wished she could shake him and make him see how his mishandling of the Texas Rebellion has set the stage for what was happening now. She turned away from him and placed the rags to soak in the hot water. You know, they call me the Butcher of the Alamo. But it was the troublemakers themselves who chose their fates. I gave those malcontents the opportunity to surrender. They made their choice. She turned back around to look at him. How had he known what she was thinking? Had he noticed the accusation in her eyes? He smiled at seeing the surprise on her face. You're not the only Tejana I've met. Once again has looked at me the same way you just did, as if I were a bloodthirsty, barbarous villain and not a president general fulfilling his duty by suppressing the rebellion of those foreigners who were intent on taking Texas from us. You blame me for the way the ungrateful Texians have treated Tejanos ever since. After the revolt, which too many of you supported, you became second-class citizens in your own homeland. So much unnecessary bloodshed, isn't that what you accuse me of? But as I said, I gave the wretched adventurers the opportunity to surrender, and they didn't. At least, not until it was too late. Now they're venerated as martyrs, Travis, Bowie, Crockett, those lucky scoundrels. But it is only those Yankees who will be remembered and beloved, not the native sons of Texas who were in the fort with them. Only the white defenders will go down through the ages as the heroes of Texas independence, whereas their Tejano allies, like Juan Seguin, were run out of the new republic in shame and disgrace. That's Yankee gratitude for you. And what about Goliath? Santa Ana shrugged. 
I was merely upholding our existing laws. Our government had decreed that foreigners bearing arms in Mexican territory were to be treated and tried as pirates, which, as you may know, is punishable by death. The law was unjust, but the law commands, and who am I to violate it? So that was how he justified having almost 400 prisoners shot in cold blood. They weren't all foreigners, she said, realizing she was entering dangerous territory. Some were Mexican citizens. His skin turned redder and his feverish eyes flashed with anger. When you Tejanos took up arms against the motherland, you forfeited your rights as Mexican citizens. You committed treason against your own people. How else should I have treated the rebels who dare betray our nation? His accusation hovered in the room like a swarm of screeching grackles darkening the sky. She turned away from his anger, her hands shaking. The mortar and pestle were suddenly too heavy and she set them down on the table. She wished she could simply leave instead of tending the wounds of this man whose actions were responsible for so much bloodshed and for the plight of the Tejanos. If instead of brutality, he had shown mercy and treated his prisoners in an honorable way, maybe then, in the eyes of the Texians, not everyone of Mexican descent would be looked upon as an enemy. Up next, the original song that Reno wrote especially for this novel. After you have a listen, tune in to the behind the scenes where we dig into the story behind the story.
lost the battle And to San Luis we marched on Where President Santana Gave me my own men and guns We were called the San Patricios The bravest of living souls La angostura, it was brutal Were unforgiving in our capital. 